Genesis 9, verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And I remind you again, here we have a literal Noah, a literal ark, a literal global flood. And what you may not be aware of is this literal global flood, or may not have thought of, this literal global flood bottlenecked the human genome down to Noah's three sons and their three child-bearing wives. Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their wives are the only child-bearing men and women to come off the ark, and they repopulated the earth. There is this interesting emphasis here on Ham's youngest son, and Ham was the father of Canaan. We have Shem, Ham, and Japheth, none of their Sons, none of Shem's sons or Japheth's sons are mentioned, but Ham's son, his youngest son, is mentioned here. And last time I told you that that was on purpose, that that was an express design of God, and we never had the opportunity to fully unpack that. This week we will. But note from the beginning of their exit of the ark, we have this declaration of Ham being the father of Canaan. In Isaiah 54, 9, Ezekiel 14, 14, Matthew 24, 36 through 44, Luke 17, 26 through 30, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, we find a literal Noah, a literal global flood, and a literal ark that rescued Shem, Ham, Japheth, Noah, and their wives from the wrath of God upon sinful mankind. This is not a story told in Genesis alone. It's not some analogy that we're to draw spiritual truth out of. It is a real historical count of the real four surviving men and four surviving wives that all entered into the ark under God's grace. Now they are a picture, spiritually speaking, of the ark of Jesus Christ, whom we all must enter into, that we might be saved, not from a coming deluge of water, but a coming deluge of fire. But we find the history of a global flood and Noah's family on this ark throughout the pages of Scripture. It is real and glorious history of God's grace and God's judgment. And it warns us of God's coming judgment and the need to flee to Christ, the only ark, the only vessel that will rescue men and women from the wrath to come. In verse 19, it says, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three the whole earth was populated. The whole earth was populated. Last time I spent, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes looking at some of the science behind that. And there is science behind that. I reminded you that the Word of God is true whether or not we find scientific verification or other extra-biblical historical verification. There have been many doubters and naysayers to deny things such as Jericho. Jericho never existed. The Bible created this whole people and city-state that never existed. It's a fiction. And again and again, we find things like Jericho in the earth, given enough time. What you don't find is evidence of a vast Nordic-like race of men living in North America in the Book of Mormon. 
you don't find in the other so-called spiritual literature outside of Genesis through Revelation, outside of God's holy word, you don't find reality. If you study the Hindu so-called scriptures, if you study the Mormon so-called scriptures, another testament, you don't find historical veracity where history bumps into it, true history, you find no agreement. But what you find with scripture unique amongst the so-called sacred scriptures of this earth is the scriptures are the real historical account of God's working amongst men and the people groups existed, the individual peoples, uh, men and women existed and given enough time and research, they are found and proven out again and again. Now the same is true with science. All true science comports with the Word of God. There's much, I think we've become aware in the last year, have we not? There's much that comes under the umbrella of so-called science, but you really should call it science-y. It's science-y. It's science-ish. Um, there's science, and there's that which is science-y, and that which is science-ish. But what we find in the area of genome, in the area of the genetic record of mankind and DNA, is that science very much agrees with one man and one woman recently uh, being our original ancestors, our great-great-great-great-grandfather and mother, Adam and Eve. And what we find is that science verifies in the genome that it was bottlenecked, that genetic record was bottlenecked, and they speak of various catastrophic global events that could have caused it, denying the Bible, of course, the obvious cause, a worldwide global flood, but they look to anything but that. They suggest that in this catastrophe, these are secular scientists, in this catastrophe, that perhaps as few as 40 childbearing couples survived. And from that group came all of us today. And so while they reject the record of Scripture, what they find in the record of the genome fits perfectly with the record of Scripture. And they will find, as we will as well, that indeed... God brought judgment upon mankind in a global flood. And as Second Peter 3 warns us, we suppress that truth in our unrighteousness, the truth of our Creator God, the truth of His judgment of mankind in a global flood, and the truth of His coming judgment, and we suppress it to our own eternal detriment. And so, from these were the sons of Noah... Uh, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated, verse 19. Verses 20 through 24, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. We paused here last time and considered both the failings and sins of the father and the failings and sins of the son. We'll touch on it again. Noah began to be a farmer. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and was drunk. We find in Scripture many warnings about drunkenness. There are men who come to Noah's defense and say that it was a matter of ignorance. It was a mistake. He didn't realize post-flood that 
there would be this result when he made his, his grape juice. It fermented, and to his shock, uh, unbeknownst to him, he became drunk, and so they paint him as an innocent victim of a changing environment. I don't think that's accurate, and there's really no justification for that. He planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and was drunk. The term for wine here is a normal term for wine throughout Scripture, and so it seems that he was making wine. The sin, the definite sin, is in the drunkenness, and that's what we need to be warned of. With the wine and the drunkenness, ultimately came sin, and not just sin with Noah, but sin that broke out in his family. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. There are many warnings such as that throughout Scripture, and we need to heed those warnings. Beware of the dangers of drunkenness. That said, we searched the Scriptures elsewhere, and we found that wine was used for celebration and not condemned as such, and the Lord Jesus Himself made water into wine, and it was real wine. It was not some faux wine. In fact, they said it was the very best wine, and it had been saved for last, you recall, from John chapter 2 at that Cana wedding. And so, drunkenness is always forbidden, but let us be careful not to legalistically condemn our neighbor's who partake of a glass or two of wine. The great commentator Matthew Henry says regarding Ham's impudence and impiety, he says this, Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren. To see it accidentally and involuntarily would not have been a crime, but he pleased himself with the sight. Charity rejoices not in iniquity, nor can true penitents that are sorry for their own sins rejoice in the sins of others. He told his two brethren, without, in the street, as the word is, in a scornful, deriding manner that their father might seem vile unto them. It is very wrong to make a jest of sin, to be puffed up with that for which we should rather mourn, and to publish the faults of any, especially of parents, whom it is our duty to honor. Noah was not only a good man, but had been a good father to him, and this was a most base, disingenuous repayment to him, For his tenderness. In contrast to Ham's dishonor of father, we see the pious care of Shem and Japheth to cover their father's shame. They not only would not see it themselves, but provided that no one else might see it, herein setting us an example of charity with reverence to other man's sin and shame. There is a mantle of love to be thrown over the faults of all. Besides this, there's a robe of reverence to be thrown over the faults of parents and other superiors. Now, of course, that has its limits. There are certain sins and certain behaviors that must be dealt with, and at times dealt with even publicly, even in the court of law. But when we are quick to publish the sins of others, we need to check our hearts. When we're quick to find faults in others and then to make those faults known, and we find a certain perverse joy in that, we know that our hearts are not right or righteous. And so we find here in Ham this sin of pride above all. There's not love for his father exhibited here. There's not humility in himself, knowing his own propensity to sin, and that this could be him, found drunken and naked. Rather, he takes a sinful delight in his father's 
state and is quick to share it with his brothers, and they are disapproving, praise God. They don't jump on board with it, and that's a lesson in itself. Don't go with the flow of evil. Stem the tide, rather, and seek to bring the evil to an end. And in that, you'll find that Shem and Japheth bring no judgment on themselves, but allow Ham to incur his own judgment. I warned last time, or gave you the warning, reminded you of the warning of Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and mother. You think, well, that's a warning, pastor? That's an admonition. That's the law of God. Honor your father and mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments. That's the first horizontal commandment, the first four vertical between man and God. This is the first commandment on the human plane. It's to honor your father and mother. And it's first in that second table, the Decalogue. It's first because of its importance, because family is the foundation of all society. And parents raise sinful savages up to be godly offspring. But they're born as sinners, rebels against God. And it's our job to bring them beneath the authority of God. It's our job to labor to teach them the law of God. Now, God must empower His Word within them that His law would be a tutor to bring them to Christ to be justified by faith, Galatians 3.24. But we labor as parents to bring that law of God to bear upon them that they would be captive to it, and their sin would not run amok and destroy them and others. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. That's the rest of Exodus twenty twelve. When we do not honor father and mother, we're not honoring God. When we rebel against mom and dad, we rebel against God. And when we as a culture disrespect parenthood, disrespect fatherhood and motherhood and family, even the marriage covenant, then we are disrespecting and rebelling against God. And there's a direct assault on marriage. There's a direct assault on fatherhood and motherhood. There's a direct assault on gender even today. And so our culture is defying God and we will reap the whirlwind. We are reaping the whirlwind and we will yet reap the whirlwind tragically even as we see Ham suffer the consequences of sin. That's multiplied out many times over in our current society. Just very quickly, I'll give you these warnings that flow after Exodus 20, that flow after this commandment that comes first in the second table of the Decalogue, honor your father and mother. That's Exodus 20.12. Exodus 21.15 says, And he who strikes his father and mother shall surely be put to death. Exodus 21.17 says, And he who curses his father and mother shall surely be put to death. In today's world, we think, wow, that is harsh. Mind you, that's the theocracy of Israel. We don't put children to death here. But God is holy and just, and this is his holy standard. And praise God, it is doubtful that Israel had to carry out the death penalty often for children who were rising up and striking father and mother. Because when you have this high and holy law set, honor your father and mother, and those who don't, those who would dare strike mother or father or curse them, they shall be put to death. First and foremost, it compels mother and father to raise godly offspring. It compels mother and father to take their duties seriously and to teach their children, to admonish their children in the faith and to bring due chastisement upon them from a young age when they depart from righteousness. And so 
it is healthy for society to know the law of God. It is healthy for society even to have this high and holy standard. Uh, today we have, we have mothers that when their children commit great crimes, heinous crimes even, we have mothers and fathers who just can't bring themselves to say that little Johnny did something evil. And they wouldn't want him to go to prison for it. They wouldn't want him to suffer for it. We need to be able to call evil evil no matter who's committing it. And the more able we're and willing we are to do that from the young age, the more our children will be blessed for it. Again, we don't put children to death. We're not in the theocracy of Israel. But we should warn children of the seriousness of God's command to honor father and mother and the blessings that flow from it and the curses that flow from disobeying it, the judgments of God that are upon that. Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. Proverbs 20, verse 20 says, Whoever curses his father or mother, his lamp shall be put out in deep darkness. And remember, Proverbs was written to make you wise. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, Proverbs 1, 7. And it says in Proverbs 20, 20, Whoever curses his father or mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. And it's true. It's true. Even outside of the theocracy of Israel, those who grow up as rebels against mom and dad tend to be those who are in the obituary early, tend to be those whose sin finds them out. And they are in the jail system or the prison system or the morgue or the graveyard early. The wage of sin is death, after all. Proverbs 30 Verse 17 says, The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. I remember I took a group of youth, squirrely youth, on a ski retreat years and years ago. And uh, at, at that time in the church, this is right at the beginning of my pastorate, there was a youth group that was kind of out of hand. Um, and I inherited this youth group. And there were many kids coming to the youth group that did not attend the church. Their parents didn't attend the church. They came to the youth group to play electric guitars and be crazy out back. And I, I thought, well, that's great. They need Christ. You know, I'm glad they're here. So I'll take them on a ski trip, and we'll have a lot of fun, and I'll have a great time bringing the Word of God directly to bear upon them. And they can't get away, right? Because uh, we're on this great ski trip. And this is one portion of God's Word that I brought to bear upon them. And some of them were just terrified. They were just... What? Proverbs 30, 17, the eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. What? Yes. God is a holy and just judge. Now, I think I backed it up with the, the text regarding um, uh, mocking the prophet of God as old baldy and the bear coming out and eating them. Um, just to give them the full-orbed biblical worldview of their need to be subject. This is a very rebellious group of youth. And I was trying to love them and make them aware of God's standard of holiness and where they are in the world. You are children with very rebellious dispositions, and you need to come beneath God by coming beneath your parents and your elders and honoring your parents and your elders, lest God's judgment come upon you. And it's parents' job, it's our job as parents and grandparents to teach children that there is a God and they aren't it. There is a God and they are subject to Him. And the God who made 
them, who created them, created us and gave us authority. He has vested us with authority from God to teach them righteousness. Ephesians chapter 6, it's not just the Old Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, children obey your parents. That's so archaic. It's so true. It's so necessary. Again, it's the foundation of all society. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment. The first commandment? No, it's the fifth commandment. It's the first commandment in the second table, the Decalogue. The first commandment on the horizontal plane, human to human, is honor your father and mother. Ephesians 6 verse 3 that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. I told you earlier, we don't put children to death here. This is not the theocracy of Israel. However, this is Ephesians 6. And Paul is not admonishing the church to put children to death in the New Testament era, but he is warning them from the Old Testament about the seriousness of dishonoring father and mother and the judgment that that brings upon children and families as a whole. Ephesians 6 verse 4, of course, kind of balances things out a bit. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And so fatherhood is is not merely being harsh and stern with the children. Uh, No, don't provoke them uh, to wrath through unnecessary or unjust harshness. Bring them up, rather, in the training and in admonition of the Lord. Our children are entrusted to us as gifts from God. They ultimately don't belong to us. But hear me, they definitely don't belong to the state. They are entrusted to us from God. And we're accountable to raise them up as godly offspring for the glory of God. They are not wards of the state. They are wards of their parents. And we will give an account to God for our parenting of them as we bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Training and admonition. I don't have time to go into this in depth, but training and admonition speaks to, when you get to the root words in Greek, training is instruction from the seat of the pants up to the heart, right? Because you're trying to train the heart. Admonition is from the head down. Training and admonition. And you're meeting the heart in the middle. You want heart change through consistent training and admonition. Hebrews 12 would talk about chastening, that God, our Father, our perfectly Father, chastens us perfectly. And it's not pleasant, it says, but it produces the peaceable fruits of righteousness like our earthly fathers who chastened us for a season. Now, our earthly fathers did it imperfectly, but it was for our good. It was for our good. And what you find in the prison system is the most common denominator is a lack of fatherly presence or fatherly input in their lives. They lack fatherhood, and it's better to have a stern, even um, an abusive father to a certain level than to have no father at all. Not that I'm encouraging anyone toward that, but as far as a society and the effects upon a society as a whole and upon individuals, better to have an overly stern father than no father at all and no ramifications for sin, no checks and balances in your life. And so let us love our children, discipline our children, provide for our children, lead them in prayer and Bible study and church and evangelism and righteous communication, teaching them through our own temperament to have a Christian temperament, teaching them 
to love and cherish women by loving and cherishing their mother. We never stop encouraging our children towards repentance and faith in Christ, toward righteousness uh, with the truth of God until they stop breathing or we stop breathing. They're always our children. And we always want, like Noah, to get all our children on the ark. On the ark. And safely to glory. Never stop giving needed correction. Mild, medium, passionate. Get their attention. You want to say to them when necessary, over my dead body, right? You shall not pass. You want to go down the road of destruction and sin to hell? Over my dead body. I'll throw every roadblock I can in there. Out of love for you, dear son, dear daughter. Fresh ground. Fresh ground with plenty of time remaining. Verses 25 through 27. God's curse and covenant. God's curse and covenant. And that will serve as the title of today's message. So we find as a result of the sin that broke out in Noah's family that started with him planting a vineyard, drinking the wine, getting drunk. He's naked. Ham comes, discovers him, takes some evil delight in it, goes and tells his brothers, thinking they're going to delight in it in the same fashion. Thankfully, they do not. Nevertheless, this sin has ramifications. God's curse and covenant. What we're going to find is even in the ramification of sin, even in the curse that is brought to bear upon Canaan because of Ham's sin, we find grace, we find mercy, and we find God's promise of covenant, at least suggested here. Suggested. And I'll remind you, back to verse 18, um, this oddity here, the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. There's this oddity, and Ham was the father of Canaan. And now Ham sins against Noah, his father, and this curse is going to come, and we're going to see it's going to fall upon Canaan. Again, it seems to be an oddity. We need to explain it. Let's read it, and then we'll do that. Verse 25. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. God's curse and covenant. Ham sinned, and yet the curse is not the curse of Ham so much as it is the curse of Canaan. And God is just in this and has his purpose in this. And his purpose is in covenant. His purpose is in ultimately making a covenant with his people and he would give his covenant people the land of Canaan. Now, the curse is this. Ham's sin doesn't just affect Ham. Ham's sin affects Ham's children. Whatever proclivities were in Ham's heart that led him to this sin against his father, this great disrespect and dishonor of his father, he passed on to his son Canaan, and Canaan passed it on to his sons who passed it on to their sons, and they became the Canaanites, the enemies of God. Those whom the Lord would send Israel in to wipe out every man, every woman, and every child. And so as 
Moses is pinning Genesis. As Moses is writing the record of God's works amongst men, Moses pins Hebrews chapter 9 with knowledge of what is coming later as God's going to command Abraham to go in and to wipe out the Canaanites. Excuse me, um, Abraham to go into Canaan and establish his family there, and ultimately Moses to go in and wipe out the Canaanites. So God's curse and covenant. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this of Genesis 9, 24 and following. Because of this incident, Noah prophesied about his son's descendants. He began with the direct words, Cursed be Canaan. However, Noah was not punishing Ham's son for something Ham did. Instead, Noah's words refer to the nation of the Canaanites that would come from Ham through Canaan. Ham's act of hubris could not be left without repercussions. And it had repercussions. And some, sometimes our sin brings the immediate chastening of God upon us. And you think of like Ananias and Sapphira who dropped dead there. And they took them out and buried them. And sometimes the Lord allows our sin, the consequences of our sin directly to come upon us. And in that we are chastened. And very often as parents, our sins, our parental sins, find us out in that way, tragically. You find it with David, King David. is a sad example of terrible parenting and the nightmare he unleashed in his family. And you find it here with Ham. And ultimately, over generations, his descendants through Canaan became the Canaanites. And this is a judgment upon Ham. Oh, we can suffer many things, but seeing our children suffer or our children's children suffer is a great sorrow. May God guard us from sin lest we unleash the whirlwind upon our children. Matthew Henry explains the judgment of Ham through Canaan. An undutiful child that mocks at his parents is no more worthy to be called a son, but deserves to be made as a hired servant, nay, as a servant of servants amongst his brethren. Though divine curses operate slowly, yet first or last they will take effect. The Canaanites were under a curse of slavery and yet for a great while had the dominion for a family, a people, a person may lie under the curse of God and yet may long prosper in the world till the measure of their iniquity like that of the Canaanites be full. Many are marked for ruin that are not yet ripe for ruin. Therefore, let not thy heart envy sinners. And so in time, the curse was found out in time. God's perfect time, the curse was found out. Think of the Ninevites. God announced judgment upon them. And of course, the unfaithful prophet Jonah did not want any way to dissuade God from that judgment. So he did not want to go and preach the message of God, lest they repent and God have mercy. Nevertheless, uh, when God sends a prophet, the prophet will go. Whether he's fish spit or whether he goes willingly, he will go. And so Jonah went and Jonah preached, and I expect his heart was not, you know, this glorious, love-filled heart as he preached to them the judgments of God that were coming. 
And praise God, he was gracious and granted repentance. And Nineveh, as a city-state, bent their knee to the one true God, and God spared them. Nevertheless, in God's time, the judgment did fall. Nineveh was wiped out on generations that followed. That curse was yet brought to pass. In this case, the Canaanites would come under the direct judgment of God as he sent in Israel to wipe out this rebel people. How did the curse upon Canaan play out in God's perfect timing? In the form of an everlasting covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that Moses himself would be the recipient of as he went to rescue God's people from Egypt and take them into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so we find in Genesis 12, and we will preach this properly in weeks ahead, but in Genesis 12, we find the Abrahamic covenant in verses 1 through 7. And the Abrahamic covenant involves the promise of a land and a seed and a blessing. What do you remember about the Abrahamic covenant? You remember it's the promise of a land and a seed and a blessing. A land and a seed and a blessing. A what? A land. What land? The land of Canaan. The land of Canaan. There is often a dispute in today's world, right now, real time, between Palestinians and the Jews. Why? Because the Palestinians say, this is our land. But hear me, it's all God's land. And God gave it to the Jews. The Jews do have the right to the land because God gave it to them. God is sovereign over the nations of men, and he gave Canaan unto Israel. At the end of the age, there will not be a Palestinian state there. It will be Israel. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired at Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Now that's part of why I remain a dispensationalist. Now not a hyper-dispensationalist, not a Schofield dispensationalist, and I don't have time to go into all the different types of varieties of dispensationalists. But let me say... I'm a dispensationalist, and that there's a distinction between Israel and the church, and that the church has not fulfilled all the promises given to Israel. I yet believe, and I would encourage you to yet believe, that God is going to uphold His covenant with Israel, His covenant with Abram, the Abrahamic covenant, and that Israel, the descendants of Abraham, will receive the land in full, and that Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, and the cosmos, and every man, but the King of the Jews will rule and reign in Israel for a thousand years in a realized kingdom. The kingdom that is the theocracy 
of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant will come to pass. The land and the seed and the blessing will come to pass. And over and over and over again, you find the promise of the land intrinsically tied with the promise of a seed and a blessing. And when you try to pull the land out, you choose to take one portion of the prophecies regarding Christ's second coming and make it non-literal while saying, yes, the other portions are quite literal. And I think we should have a consistent hermeneutic. And so this is part of the foundation, this Abrahamic covenant, of my eschatology. And I think of biblical eschatology, biblical end times doctrine. Will there be a literal, actual millennial kingdom that Revelation speaks of? a thousand-year kingdom where Christ rules and reigns in Israel as the king of the Jews. And yes, from Israel over all nations. And the answer is yes. Yes, he will. In this land that God said he would show Abram, this land called Canaan. And the Canaanites were in the land. Now we jump forward in time to Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, so he was 75 and the Lord called him. Now he's 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father to many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and to your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You cannot get around the promise of the land of Canaan in the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, which is passed on to Isaac and passed on to Jacob, Jacob who becomes Israel, the father of the twelve tribes. In Genesis 28, jumping further ahead in time, we come to Isaac. Genesis 28, verses 1 through 9. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there, the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Skip to verse 5. So Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel in Syria, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Verse 6. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a, himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. And so they were not to intermarry with Canaan. They were amongst the people of Canaan, but they weren't to intermarry with Canaan. They were to be the distinct descendants of Abraham, who would ultimately become the descendants of Isaac, who would become the descendants of Jacob, who would become the 12 tribes, that would become Israel. In Genesis 31, 17 and 18, we get to Jacob 
Then Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He's been down with his uncle. He's managed to get himself two wives. Behold, it was Leah, right? Bonus wife. Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock to his possessions, which he had gained, his acquired livestock, which he had gained at Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. So he's going back to Canaan, back to the promised land. And he's taking his two wives and all of the herds the Lord had blessed him with. And he had served seven years for one wife, seven years for a second, seven years for the herds. He's been away for a while. He's going home to Canaan, the promised land. Then we come to Genesis 35, verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Remember the covenant, a land, a seed. Be fruitful, multiply, a seed and a blessing. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. The what? The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. And to your descendants after you, I give this land. If anyone ever had a claim on a chunk of planet Earth, it's the Jews. Because God says again and again and again, I give you this land. And God created the heavens and the earth and this nation from the seed of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob made Israel. And then the 12 sons, the 12, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. Genesis 36, verses 1 and 2. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took wives from the daughters of Canaan. And Esau in that becomes the father of the Edomites that are the enemies of Israel. And we have these dual enemies, the Edomites and the Canaanites, enemies of God, enemies of Israel, warring with them through the ages. Genesis 46, 6. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. Why did they do that? Because there was a famine in the land, and God ordained it. And so he sent this fledgling nation that was really just a family, Jacob, now Israel, with his 12 sons. And how did this all work out? Well, Joseph was sold into slavery by the sons who were jealous because Joseph was given these prophetic dreams and he shared them with his brothers. Be careful in such things. I had a dream. You're all going to bow down to me. Isn't that great? Maybe not. Didn't work out so well, humanly speaking, but God had a great plan, a great plan to send Joseph before them in the most unlikely of ways, sold into slavery, ultimately sold into Potiphar's house, then from Potiphar's house put into prison because Mrs. Potiphar was not chaste and accused him of seeking a relationship with her, and he left behind his cloak, and that became the proof. But from the prison house, the Lord gave him dreams, and ultimately those dreams were prophecies, and the Lord brought him out of prison and made him the right hand of Pharaoh and ultimately made him ruler over all of Egypt, more powerful than all except for Pharaoh 
himself. And then the famine comes and the brothers go and they, unbeknownst to themselves, are standing before Joseph, whom they'd sold into slavery. And Joseph ultimately says to them at the end of the story, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so they come into Egypt and they are welcomed by Joseph. And in Egypt, they prosper. In Egypt, they become a nation. In Egypt, a family becomes, give or take, three million over a few hundred years' time. In Genesis 50, verses 4 and 5, Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go and bury my father, and I will come back. Jacob, now Israel, Joseph's father, would not be buried in Egypt. Bury me in Canaan, the land that God gave us by covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, I must take my father and bury him in Canaan. And Pharaoh consents to this, and he goes and does just that. Glorious history. Glorious history. And we will cover that in great depth in the weeks to come. But then we come to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Moses. And remember, Moses is the penman of all of Genesis, recording all that history that was passed down through the ages to God's people. And Moses is writing Genesis 9 about Ham, or rather Shem, Ham and Japheth being the three sons on Noah's Ark who come off. And he oddly mentions Ham was the father of Canaan, even before Ham sinned. And the curse was brought upon Canaan. And then even the curse is kind of odd that the curse falls upon Canaan. But God has a plan. And in time, the plan will come to pass. God rules over all. And what some men mean for evil, even that God will work for the good of his children, his elect. What Cam meant for evil, God works for the good of future generations of his children as the land of the Canaanites is prepared for them. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw That he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, Moses said, I am the Lord. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites. Exodus 3.17, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt 
to the land of the Canaanites. And so hundreds of years later, long after Israel had worn off its welcome as guests in Egypt and had become over time slaves in Egypt, the Lord called Moses, reminded him of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and said, I'm going to send you to set my people free and to take them into a glorious land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, which takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, and the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham's son named Canaan. It all ties together. Exodus 3 verse 11 And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. Now think of this. For hundreds of years, this family had dwelt in Egypt and had become a nation, had become a nation, the nation of Israel in Egypt, protected by this superpower, one of the world's great superpowers, Egypt, protected by them, but protected by being their slaves. God's ways are higher than our ways. And in God's time, after he creates this great nation within a nation, he sends Moses to rescue them out, to take them back to the very land where they started as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the very land that God had sworn to give them by covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, And to Jacob, go and set my people free, and I will bring you to the land of the Canaanites. The land that he swore to you and your fathers, and he gives to you. Says Exodus 13, verse 11. Exodus 23, verse 23. The Lord speaking. For my angel, my angel will go before you and bring you to the Amorites and to the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. And you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. And here Genesis 9.25 is fulfilled. Cursed be Canaan. Here the curse is fulfilled. The judgment is fulfilled upon Canaan and his descendants as the Lord sends his angel, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, to go before Israel and to lead them into the land of Canaan, to utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 7, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you 
to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. He's chosen them as a people, starting with Abram. Where did it all begin? Abram. God chose Abram. What was special about Abram? Nothing. He was one pagan amongst nations of pagans. And God called Abram and said, come out of your land, leave your father, come to the land that I will show you, the land of Canaan. And there I will give you a land and a seed and a blessing. And from the loins of Abram, he made a nation. And not just a nation, but a spiritual nation, a physical nation, Israel, but a spiritual nation, which is why in Romans, it talks about Abram even being on a spiritual level, our father. And Abraham was saved, says Romans, not by works, but by faith. He's our spiritual father. And thus we look all the way back to Abram as our spiritual father. And by the way, the Lord Jesus ultimately comes from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the king of the Jews, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the seed, capital S, not just a seed, but the seed, capital S, who would be a blessing to all nations. And the way that ultimately Abraham is the father of many nations in the truest sense is that some from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come unto God through Jesus Christ and become, spiritually speaking, children of Abraham, following in the faith of Abraham, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this land, the land of Canaan, is given unto Israel. And in this curse, back in Genesis 9, upon Ham's son, Canaan, we have also the promise of a covenant. In this curse, we have also grace. In this curse, we have also mercy. In this curse, we have also God's sovereign purposes working out throughout generation after generation after generation to come. And I think we also have a solid foundation to say that God will indeed restore Israel even as unlikely as it was after hundreds of years of being enslaved in Egypt for a nation to be set free and go back to its origin to conquer the residents, the Canaanites, and to set up Israel in Canaan, as unlikely as that was. Well, let's see. Israel did not exist from 70 AD when the Roman general Titus came in and conquered them and crushed the temple literally, burned it to the ground, and took the gold from the rocks. From 70 AD until 1948, Israel did not exist. And God in His sovereignty, unlike anything else in the history of the world, raised up a nation that did not exist for nearly 2,000 years. A people that had been dispersed around the globe were brought back, sent back, compelled back to Canaan by the hatred of Adolf Hitler. And not just the hatred of Adolf Hitler, but of Stalin and even the United States of America. They had nowhere to go. I don't know how well you know your history, but the Jews had nowhere to go but back to Canaan, for no one would have them. And so in God's time, He sent them back to yet fulfill what was a curse 
upon the Canaanites, but was a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of Israel. And thus, in 1948, Israel was reborn. A dead language, long unspoken, began to be spoken again. And they had plans to rebuild a temple. Again, if you know your history, you know as soon as they again were declared a nation and recognized by the UN as a nation, the Muslim nations around them swore to their destruction and attacked them. And every time they attacked them, Israel just took more of Canaan, more of the promised land. And so they are yet to be revived spiritually. They've been revived nationally out of the ashes. Isaiah 53 has not yet been fulfilled. They have not looked upon he whom was pierced and mourned. Now, Christ fulfilled it historically. He came and suffered and died. But Israel has not seen their suffering Messiah and repented as a whole. And Christ has not come and ruled and reigned, which, by the way, is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant given to King David was that one from his line would come, one of his seed would come, which is why Jesus is called the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King of Israel. And so we have compelling reason to believe that the King of Kings will come and rule and reign in Canaan, the promised land. And it goes all the way back. This promise, this design, this plan goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. God's ways are higher than our ways. What Ham meant for evil, God meant for good and turned for the good of his people. Let us close this up. Verse 28, And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Matthew Henry comments on Noah's long and blessed life, how God prolonged the life of Noah. He lived 950 years, 20 more than Adam, but 19 less than Methuselah. This long life was a further reward of his signal piety and a great blessing to the world to which no doubt he continued to, as a preacher of righteousness with this advantage that now all he had preached to were his own children and grandchildren. How God put a period to his life at last. Though he lived long, yet he died, having probably first seen many that descended from him dead before him. Noah lived to see two worlds. But being an heir of the righteousness, which is by faith, when he died, he went to see a better world than either of the two. Praise God for his grace. Noah is in the hall of faith in Hebrews. As a recipient of grace, through faith, not of works. As Abraham was after him, and as Moses is after him. All trophies of amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and you and Abraham before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your astounding wisdom that's higher than our wisdom, for your ways that are higher than our ways, for how you work even the sins of men for your own glory and for the blessing of your people. We thank you, Father, for your covenant promises that will most certainly come to pass in Christ Jesus, the fulfillment of them all. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come rule and reign on this earth with a rod of iron, a benevolent dictatorship 
the true theocracy, Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, putting an end to sin forever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.